Chapter 7 is kind of fun and cool. It's elaborating again on primates, non-human primates. So again, anything not human in all of the primate world. So if you go back to uh, the loveliest page in chapter 6 on page 184 and 185, this is, this is your primate guide. And this should be the, uh, the heart of this unit, all the primates involved that we're going to be looking at. So we're going to be building off of that. And today we're going to be talking about their social ability, their behaviors, their culture, um, pretty much all things dedicated to primates. So when we talk about primatology, and I'm a molecular primatologist, so I don't actually work with the, the primates themselves. I more or less look into the genes of the primates to see what that variation of the gene level is. That's what a molecular primatologist is. But the emergence of primatology in general uh, really has a lot to do with three women that went to the field that were sent there by uh, a leading primatologist of the time. Uh, he worked for National Geographic. And he sent out three young women, or I would say women, because some of them weren't young, into the field to go start collecting field research on wild primates that, has not, that had not been done before. So this is a picture of Jane Goodall. She was the leading primatologist for chimpanzee behavior. Diane Fossey was sent out to observe gorillas. And another woman who has a very unique name that I cannot remember right now was sent out to observe orangutans in Sumatra Borneo area. So Jane Goodall actually um, was probably the most well known for her work because of some of the observations that she had seen and was able to write down and publish in some, uh, some of her documentaries as well as put through National Geographic. Um, did any of you have a chance to watch Jane, the documentary from National Geographic? It kind of documents her life during her primatology work. Uh, she ended up falling in love with uh, one of her photographers that was sent out there and it kind of details the life of their, their field work, which was really cool to see, and the demise of their marriage. But anyway, that's a, that's a key side note. Anyway, so uh, really quickly about Jane, and I think I have to go to the next slide to give you the information. She did her work, in, of course, in Africa. That's where the native populations of chimpanzees reside. She really went to Gombe National Park, and Gombe is a really well-known area for chimpanzee research. Um, the area in which my advisor works is near Gombe, which is a well-known uh, research facility for primatology research. So that's in the kind of the, well, eastern, southeastern region of uh, Tanzania near south of Lake Victoria. So this is in the area that on the larger world map where she's doing her research. So Jane Goodall's, she did a lot of pioneering work in primatology, and this was in the 1960s. So try and think back about the gender roles in the 1960s. Women were not really the uh, paramount figure in doing research in way of understanding um, a lot of scientific facts. Women uh, really took a back seat or there was a, uh, just a lot of unequality in the workplace in the 60s. So to send out three women into the field in, in Africa and Borneo and Sumatra was a big deal. And she did her work on chimpanzees and she led, uh, and her research really led to important new insights about our closest primates. Chimpanzees became habituated to her. That means that they became very 
um, aware and okay, meaning they got used to her being there, that she could observe their behaviors very close up and they were not afraid of her. So she was able to make detailed notes about what they were doing and her observations of what they were doing. The, uh, specifically their social organizations, how they competed with one another, how they cooperated with one another, what they were eating, which was so incredible, and the level of intelligence that they uh, displayed. So Jane Goodall made a few surprising discoveries that kind of shook the scientific world, especially in primatology. Uh, she observed them making and using tools. And there's a, a, a transcript of wire mail that goes back and forth between her and her boss where she actually notifies her boss and says I've observed tool making and tool use among chimpanzees and he sends back an email saying well we either need to redefine man or redefine tool because this is typically seen as a man-made instrument so that was really uh, earth-shattering in way of understanding the complexity of primates she also observed, which we didn't really know because we had no other research in the field, that chimpanzees are not vegetarians, that they actually have a wide array of dietary needs. Not only are they, uh, they eat some plants and some fruits and some nuts and roots, but they also hunt small animals that they eat for protein. So things like uh, small antelopes that live in the jungle, warthogs, and even other monkeys. So uh, there's a cooperative understanding between adult chimpanzees for hunting meat in the wild. And it's very exciting. You know, I should include a video of that, but I don't have one right now. So the questions addressed in this chapter, what are primates? What, why are primates social? I'm sorry. What is so special about primate societies and their social behavior? How do primates acquire food? And how do primates communicate? Yes, primates do communicate with each other. It's not linguistically complex as ours, but they do communicate with each other. We did see in the videos how howler monkeys howl for communication and for territory, right? So they do communicate. And we'll look at the different group structures, how uh, primates organize themselves. We have a very rare uh, grouping amongst humans. We most humans recognize monogamous pair relationships, which is very rare in the animal kingdom. So we'll look at the different group structures and societies that primates organize themselves, and how uh, reproductive strategies, how they differ between males and females in these primate societies. Uh, and we'll, uh, again, talk about how they communicate with one another. So primates express themselves socially through a range of actions, and let me give you just a brief, they, they touch one another, they groom, they fight, they greet each other, sometimes with a hug, they lip smack, they, they even, like I said, they even hug. And that these behaviors really serve to establish or break bonds or um, reinforce bonds between individuals in the group. And so primates really do have a lot of social aspects to them. Many primate societies are very highly complex. There's stratification within the society. There are lower ranking individuals and there are higher ranking individuals. And there are all the echelons in between. Usually, typically, the lower ranking individuals will be on watch and will have last access to some sort of resource, like a food resource, whereas the higher ranking individuals will have to work less, have more access to reproductive rights, and more access to food resources. 
Um, it's usually ranked somewhere between age and sex, um, and we'll see as we go through the society how they organize themselves, uh, why age and sex matters. Primates uh, form various long-term relationships. This is what makes humans so distinct amongst the animal kingdom, is that we have the ability to understand a long-term relationship and remember things on a long-term basis to avoid fatal mistakes. So cooperation between individuals is more likely to evolve in a species that have long lives, that have the brain power to remember specific events and individuals, and that helps us, again, to avoid those pitfalls, those fatal mistakes in life. <laughs> so, <laughs> excuse me. They call this kind of behavior sociobiology, understanding the sociology of it, the societal aspect of it, plus integrated with the biology of it, because behaviors can and do evolve. So, primate behavior is dictated by the natural selection process as well as sexual selection. And behaviors that enhance our chance of survival and reproduction will be selected for and evolve in the future. So these are primal traits that we have that have been selected for over time that are still being selected for as we speak. Uh, there is va a variation in part that is heritable and this variation leads to differential survival and, and reproduction. Many behaviors are learned. There is a re range of behavior flexibility that has allowed us to adapt to a wide variety of environmental situations. <clears throat> so if you can learn how to survive in an in environmental situation that benefits you, then your offspring will likely learn that same beneficial uh, attribute and carry that on. So primate, uh, we're still on primate social behavior, and now we're gonna talk about that sexual dimorphism between that primate, uh, between those sexes in the primate. So remind me again, what is sexual dimorphism? Do you remember? Very, uh, yes, yeah, between the sexes, right? So you have a very distinct trait for males and you have a very distinct trait for females. Most typically, males are going to be more robust. They're going to have bigger bodies, larger, uh, large scale bone shape all around. <coughs> and for females, we call them more gracile. They're going to be just a smaller version of the male in general. So uh, most primates. I know it's a little bit small, so I'll read it back there so you guys can see it, but most primate behavior can be understood in the context of reproduction. So remember that the whole goal of life is to reproduce. It's not to check out somebody awesome on Instagram. It actually is to reproduce, right? So behaviors that increase the fitness of an individual, and what is fitness again? Ability to pass on your offspring. Yes! how many offspring you have, actually. So the greater fitness you have is equal to the amount of offspring that you bear. And so if you have a high fitness, that means you have a really great ability to bear offspring. I have low fitness. If this was like 100 years ago, I probably would have died during child labor. So thank God for modern medicine. Okay, so, so behaviors that increase the fitness of an individual will be passed on to the next generation, and fitness can be increased by having more offspring. So. There's an intense competition for male or for uh, mates amongst males, and males have much larger canines and body size than females. That is what sexual dimorphism is. So let's first talk about the um, male reproductive strategy, and then we'll get into the female reproductive strategy because they come from different angles, right? So for males, typically speaking, sperm is very plentiful and it's low energy to mate, right? So sperm are very plentiful and energetically quite cheap. 
the limiting factor to male reproductive success is adequate access to females. If you cannot mate with a female, then you will mate, you, there's a possibility you may not pass on your genes. So that's why that competition for male reproduction is so high, because they want that ability to pass on their genes to many different offspring. Thus, they compete with other males for that access. Now, that's male competition for re uh, reproduction. Females have a different reproductive strategy. Primates who are females need to assure that their offspring survive. And this is not only just with non-human primates, with us as well who are humans. Ensuring that their offspring survives has everything to do with access to food. <laughs> Those of you who are mothers and or fathers realize that dinner time is crucial, right? Get them fed, get you fed. Hopefully you got enough in your belly to make it through the night, right? So it's like so crucial, right? So for females, the main goal of reproduction is to make sure that you get enough food and your offspring gets enough food to survive and so that offspring can reach reproductive age and pass on what are initially your genes, right? So thus, females compete with other females for access to resources. And you will see that in a lot of these primate behaviors where there's a tree of fruiting, a beautiful tree of fruiting fruit. It's beautifully ripe and there's a bunch of primates in there. And typically they will most likely all be females. And you will see the lower echelon females or males guarding the tree looking for aerial predation or ter uh, terrestrial <coughs> predation like snakes or leopards or big hawks and they will be the ones that will have to sacrifice themselves in order to allow the other higher echelon individuals the access to foods. So there's a little chart here, and it's talking about sexual dimorphism. The closer you are to one, the least amount of sexual dimorphism you have. The furthest away from one, the larger the sexual dimorphism, the more difference <coughs> there is between the sexes. So this is something typical that I would put on uh, your exam for a short answer, five points. Give me an um, explanation of what you're looking at and a title for the graph. That would be two and a half points for the title, two and a half points for the explanation. Essentially what this is saying is that there are three categories that we are observing. We're, we're observing monogamous pairs, we're observing single male groups, and we're observing multi-male groups. That means this is one male to one female, that's what monogamous means. Single male to multi-female is what this one means. And when it talks about multi-male, it means that there's more than one male within the group. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is all male groups, but typically that, that would be multi-male, multi-female groups. So we're looking here at body size, and then we're looking here at the canine size, which is your tooth size, right? So we realize that in our, in our display up here on the top left, we see the largest skull on the left. That's a large male gorilla. If you look at the one next to it, that's a female gorilla. And if you look right here, this male gorilla has a very large canine. If you look at the female gorilla, there is no large canine. That is what they're talking about on that second part of the graph with that relative canine size. So what they're saying is that there is a clear, closer to one, there's less sexual dimorphism. For pair living, for monogamous pairs, and you can refer to this on page 209, where it says that you're monogamous pairs in primate species, there is less competition for females and thus little sexual dimorphism. 
What do you observe in the class right now? Does anybody here have really enlarged canines? No, we're a monogamous pair society. That reduces the amount of sexual dimorphism between us. That's a sexual selection. We are selecting against that sexual dimorphism. Now, for a single male multi-female group where you have access to many females, but you need to maintain that group through competition with other males, there is going to be an increased sexual dimorphism, especially in body size. And we saw that on the video. Remember with the mandrills? The mandrills were with the really colorful nose and the really colorful backside, and they were competing against each other and the grimace. They were grimacing, that means that he, he was able to retreat. That single male to multi-female access has a huge sexual dimorphism, and that's because that competition, that competition is used for siring offspring. And the more times you can sire offspring and pass on your genes, the more chances that your genes are gonna be present in the population. And that's frequency of those genes, frequency of those traits. You want that high frequency of that trait. That's the most sexual dimorphism. The next kind of level of sexual dimorphism will be that multi-male, multi-female group. And that's something that we call promiscuous mating. We'll get into that in a minute. But that's when we start seeing a little bit of a, a similarity between male and female. And you can see that between the chimpanzees, that the females have a canine. It's not as enlarged as the male, but it's very apparent. It's just not as, it's not as sexually dimorphic as if you were to have a single male with a multi-female group. And the same goes for canine size. Canine size reduces below the one line for monogamous pairs. For single males to multi-females, look at that canine. Extremely large in males, um, and creating a large sexual dimorphism between male and female. And the same goes for multi-male, multi-female. You need that canine as a source of competition. And so that's why it's very important. Same with body size. So let's get to the organization of primates. So something also called residence patterns, meaning how you live your, your life, the pattern of residency. Different primate species tend to live in various social systems. So residence patterns can change depending on the food availability. Now, what we're looking at is an arranged array of social groupings. So can't see it really well. Maybe it's, it is in your book on page 210. If you have your book, it's a little clear up close. We'll start one, two, three, four, five, six. The first one is polygynous grouping. That's that one male, blue is male, red is female, to multi-female. And that's going to see a large <coughs> sexual dimorphism between the sexes. Typically you're going to see this um, with one breeding male is usually exceptionally large and he constantly has to ward off aggressive challenges from other males. This one male reproduces with all of the females. That means every female that has an offspring is a direct offspring of that one male. Uh, and gorillas often live in these one male, multi-female groups. So that's number one. That's called polygyny, polygynous groups. Just like we see it in um, some of our religious groups here in America, especially with, I think it's the uh, Latter-day Saints, Mormon population, they practice polygamy, one male to multi-females. It's the same thing. So this next one, we get one female to multi-males, which is actually really rare in the animal kingdom as well. It's not as, uh, it's not as frequently seen 
as the polygynous group. This is the second one where you have one female to multi-male is called polyandry. And that's typically seen, you can see that very well amongst tamarins. If you go to the Santa Ana Zoo with the lab, we'll go see some tamarins. They are a polyandrous group. So one breeding female breeds with several males of reproductive age. Again, she is the sole recipient of all the different sperm types, often allowing her uh, the availability of different offsprings with different suitable characteristics for that environment. Uh, and then number three, right here, we have multi-male to multi-female. And this is really what we call, um, like chimpanzees, like, well, I claim that this is a more understandable <laughs> sociological group uh, than our monogamous group that we adhere to, religiously speaking. But this is called promiscuous, um, promiscuous mating. And that's because when you're in a multi-male, multi-female group and individuals are offspring of individuals who had mated are unknown. So the paternity of the offspring is not known. So Anybody can mate with anyone else, but of course maternity is known. The offspring knows the mother very well, but the exact identity of the father is not known. And that's typically normal because they live in a very multi-female, uh, multi-male group. Now, some of the things that come up when we start to look at some of the DNA is that when males grow up and they don't leave the group, we start to see back-crossing incestuous relationships with offspring, like male offspring with the mother back, uh, tracing back to that population and you start reducing the genetic variation in that gene pool, especially amongst smaller species of groups like chimpanzees. We only have so many chimpanzees left and you know, once you go out and there's not enough groups left, maybe you go back to your natal group. Some things might not work out so well, but this is called promiscuous mating. So rank is particularly important in this. The higher ranking males gaining more opportunities to reproduce. And so you'll have low ranking individuals and high ranking individuals in this multi-male, multi-female group. Number four, we get all male roaming bachelor groups. And these typically are because they're, primates in general practice exogamy, meaning Somebody from the natal group leaves. Either it's the females that leave and go find a new group to mate with, or it's the males that leave and go find a new group to mate with. It depends on the, on the primate group. <coughs> but if the males are the ones that have to leave the group and go find a new group, sometimes they band together with other sub-adults, meaning not quite adults, or juveniles that are just leaving their group, and they'll band together to help cooperation amongst, uh, help with cooperation amongst themselves to survive. So they'll, they'll forage together, they'll hunt together, something like that. And then when it comes time to reproduce, the largest of the male or the most competitive of the male may uh, break away and compete against another reigning male in another group. But these are, this is very normal to have an all-male <coughs> roaming bachelor group. Uh, and these, this is very apparent in baboons. And they're temporary, uh, and it's before individuals settle into a new residence pattern, typically multi-male, multi-female. Number five is typically one male, one female, but they group together. So you get these pair bonds, but sometimes you'll get pair bonds that kind of may, uh, like meet up with other pairs, and so you'll have group cooperation. But this is where monogamy is. This is where you end up having a monogamous 
group or a monogamous pair and a monogamous pair and they will have offsprings with each other. Um, typically, again, not seen in the primate world, very rare in the animal kingdom, mostly seen in avian groups, which are birds uh, in general. You'll see a lot of monogamy with birds. I don't know why birds like monogamy, but they're much, more, they're much better at it than primates. So, <laughs> so uh, that's that one-on-one. -on -one. One male to one female, and that's considered monogamy. But even in the primate world, you start to see cuckling. So what happens is, like in tamarins, they will have um, a, a designated male as the father figure for the offspring. But when he's out foraging or, or collecting resources for the female, she may turn around and copulate with another, another male while he's there, while the resident father is on leave. So, <laughs> happens in all primates, right? <laughs> so, and then there are solitary lives. Uh, so, uh, orangutans are known for this. Orang orangutans are known for solitary lives where they'll spend a lot of time alone. And then when it comes to mating, they will uh, put out some sort of pheromone or call to announce that they are ready for copulation and estrus. Um, and then they will interact only for reproductive purposes. And so, uh, again, orangs, orangutans and some of the prosimians will practice this social residence pattern. So, this is just the overall reproductive strategy for men, I mean, for primates. So, for males, remember that males compete against each other for access to females. Whereas females have a different reproductive strategy. They're, having, they're competing with other females for access to food, right? So, compete with one another to gain access to females. Males have larger canines, louder, more <coughs> melodic calls, vocalizations, and reproduce more often, passing on their genes to the next generation. This is known as sexual selection and can lead to sexual dimorphism. Under here, where you can't really see, is a new word that we're introducing <coughs> called infanticide. So, where you get sexual dimorphism, you also get this... Um, instance of infanticide and typically how many of you have heard in, of infanticide anyone in when i can't talk anyone want to take a stab at the definition it's when the males will kill the offspring so that they can mate with females again yes typically they're killing the offspring of other males yes but that doesn't necessarily stop them from killing their own offspring because they're horny <laughs> yes, and maybe in the end, but <laughs> so yes, exactly, well said. So essentially what's happening is that in that intense competition, and when you start to get large roaming bachelor groups that really don't have access to females, you start to get this infanticide where they are necessarily uh, finding a way to reproduce, and so infanticide is really a key it's not practiced in all primate groups, but you start to see it in some of the gorilla groups especially, where yes, they will um, have a group rival. That, that male has sired all of the offspring in that group. That male that is rivaling the resident alpha wants access to those female and he will compete. If he wins that competition, what will end up happening is yes, he will go through that group and start killing the very, very young infants, because what's happening is, and let me read this to you so that you're not going to be confused. What ends up happening, oh wait, I've already lost it. Um, I don't have, where, where am I? Okay, because a female primate who has a nursing infant cannot become pregnant, 
so they think. Something <laughs> called lactational amaretha. Uh, males who have recently become the dominant individual will sometimes kill an infant that is not his own. This causes the female to resume ovulation and thus copulation with the new male and that dominant male can then thereby increase his fitness by siring all the new offspring of that next group by killing off the old genes of that ousted alpha inseminating the females with his sperm siring all the next offspring with his sperm increasing his own fitness by having all of those offspring be part of his genetic composition so uh, that's what infanticide is. It's a very serious thing, and we don't practice it as humans, thankfully, but it also has a little bit of cannibalism involved because not only do they kill it, sometimes they eat it right in front of the female uh, to ensure the death of that infant as well. So, uh, again, competition, access to females. For females, it's different. Again, high-quality resources are so important for the health and survival of the offspring, so the higher-ranking females will have better access and better access ensures a higher number of surviving offspring. The lower ranking individuals, they may not have access to resources, so therefore they may have lower birth rates in their whole lifespan because you need to eat to survive. And if you don't have that access to food, then you may not even have that access to mates. <coughs> therefore, your birth rates are going to be longer in between. So, again, access to enough food helps to support a healthy baby and increases that fitness. We have another word that is a vocabulary word called altruism. Do you know what altruism is without reading the definition? Uh, have you heard of it? Altruistic acts? Yeah, just, uh, just behaving in a, a good way towards others. Right, yeah, being good-willed, right? Being good in nature, being the good Samaritan, right? So. Altruism, cooperative behaviors like grooming are altruistic, meaning that they help one individual, but at the expense of another. So uh, much like the lower echelon individuals that are put on watch during everybody's time of feeding in this really ripe fruit tree, those individuals are putting themselves at risk. It's an altruistic act. Because most likely everyone in that tree is related to them, they are only increasing their fitness by allowing them to be aware of when a predator is going to attack by putting themselves at an expense by alarm calling. So if you draw attention to yourself while everyone else scatters, that's going to be an advantage to the group, right? So has everything to do with kin select selection. By helping individuals related to you, you are indirectly helping your own genes survive long enough to get passed on to the next generation. So chimpanzees will hunt together and share food with one another. Many primates groom one another. This is a very key bonding moment where you're grooming one another. You're very vulnerable, but at the same time, really reinforcing that bonding. And you might see primates that are lined up in a little Congo line of grooming. And typically the one that isn't grooming at the front being groomed is the highest ranking individual. And the one at the end is the lower ranking individual. Grooming serves a hygienic function, but it also reaffirms those social bonds. And grooming is a, is a really key altruistic act. Um, alarm calls, again, draw attention to the caller. They might get eaten. Why would natural selection ever favor such a behavior? Well, 
In about the 1960s, an evolutionary biologist, William Hamilton, hypothesized that altruistic acts can evolve if the act benefits related individuals. Kin selection. By helping the individuals related to you, you can get those genes passed on to the next generation if they survive. And that's the whole point. So, uh, I believe that's, oh, this is about group living. I think I may have repeated myself. But group living uh, evolves in animals that have an elevated risk of being eaten. Now, primates in general are not predators. When we were evolving, we were not evolving as top of the chain food predators. We were more prey items than anything. So primates were preyed upon by many species, large cats, snakes, birds, other large dogs, um, even other primates. We see that chimpanzees hunt red colobus all the time. Uh, for protein, protein sources. When there is an elevated risk of predation, group living is really has potential benefits. More individual mean more eyes. So when you're really vigilant and you can see things, then you have a better chance of escaping, right? And you have a higher likelihood that at least one of the primates or uh, individuals in your group will spot the predator. More eyes, more chances to see. Many individuals can join together to defend themselves by mobbing a predator, right? So uh, behaving in this way really helps the whole of the group versus the individual. If you live in a small group, say two individuals, you're that monogamous pair bond. If a predator attacks a group successfully, it is you or me. <laughs> it is only two people. So you have a 50-50 chance of dying or living. That's pretty significant, right? Now. If, a, if you live in a group of 10, not just two, but 10, your chances, your probability drops by 10%. That's a substantial increase of survival. So let's raise the number again. You go from two to 10, now you're in a group of 100. The likelihood that you are an unfortunate victim drops to 1%. So this is the, the concept of living in a group. Uh, safety in numbers, right? So that's like the little tagline that you should put by this, is safety in numbers. Group living can increase survival of the individuals in the group and therefore evolve. <coughs> and those behaviors involved with group living also are those behaviors that will be passed on. Let's talk about this food acquisition. So primates uh, practice hunting and gathering. They don't make food like we do. Uh, they don't have cuisine like we do. Uh, they really spend about 50% of their waking time foraging. We saw this in the video last week, right? So we saw, uh, what was it, the Chakma baboons digging for roots, and they had a, a different style thumb than we did, and it was specifically for pinching and rolling that root part, that bulb off, and being able to eat it. They had a different function of their thumb. And so, they remember they said, Typically, it's about 50% of the time, but for the, that certain population of baboons, they were foraging up to 10 hours because of the type of food source they were eating was very rare, so they spent more time foraging for it. So with the food acquisition in primates, it falls again on the females. There's more burden on the female for food acquisition. Good nutrition leads to earlier first births, meaning shorter intervals between births, healthier infants, Again, shorter time between births, longer lifespan of both individuals, the offspring and the mother, and increases overall fitness. You can have more babies if you're healthier. But again, that's a female burden. 
you need to have enough resources to feed yourself and your offspring. So the factors that we that we factor in are the quality of the food. Is it high quality or low quality? Is it going to be uh, close by or is it going to be far away? That's that distribution and the availability of it, depending on seasons, what's available, right? So you're eating by the seasons. So those are really the main factors. If you go through a very dry season, you may have less availability and less distribution of that food. If you go through a very rainy season, you might have a different distribution, but many different varieties. So the availability will be more robust. So primates need food and they have to maintain a net gain of energy relative, the in, relative to the energy expended to acquire the food. So it's that balance, right? How much energy are you expending to get the food and is the food that you're getting going to replace the calories you spent to get it? Excuse me. So that's a key factor you have to keep in mind, right? That's like when you see on National Geographic the leopards or the big cats racing to get the food and then all of a sudden they kind of wane off and they end up not going any further it's because they're weighing that option is it more energetically expensive to get this food and when i do get it is it a secure food resource to replace the energy that i just used to get it so behaviors that minimize the cost of acquiring that food are beneficial so that's what that is and this is a this is a picture of a young chimpanzee he's a juvenile and he's using, this is what Jane Goodall observed. He's using a twig that he's removed all of the leaves from. It's sturdy enough to stick into a termite mound. That's what this is, or it could be an ant mound. He sticks it in there. He kind of lets it sit, lets the ants or termites gather on it. Then he takes it out and he's like, and he licks it up. Some of those ants bite. They're real, they're real terrible biters. So the quicker you eat it, the better, right? So that's that tool that Jane Goodall was observing these primates using, especially chimpanzees, which they hadn't used, they hadn't observed in the, in the natural setting before that. And so we didn't quite know that chimpanzees were tool makers and tool users. Primate communication is very exciting to understand as well. So primate vocalizations are complex. Uh, we saw a little bit of that when we were watching the video. There are different kinds of primate communications. There are alarm calls to notify you of predators. There are also, there are also melodic pair bonding calls. So with lesser apes, like gibbons and siamangs, uh, the hylobates, they have melodic pair bonding calls in the morning. And so in the morning they will call out to each other, the female will say, and then the male will respond, and then they will do that for a period of time to rebond themselves, to affirm, affirm that bond, as well as to notify other individuals of their territory. And then they will do it again at night once they come together and come back to their home territory. So they're very complex and they're used for many different reasons. Research is showing that primate calls are complex and provide a model for understanding how human language has evolved. So, researchers translate the meaning of different primate vocalizations by recording. That's what this woman is doing right here. She's recording the vocalizations and the repertoire of the primate group. So, uh, what I thought was really interesting is that this is not a picture of what the study I'm going to tell you about, but it's a good indication of how it works. Primatologists, this is a study that happened, played the vocalizations of a screaming infant vervet to a group of mothers whose kids had wandered off, right? So it was just like all the mothers kind of foraging around. 
they played this vocalization of that screaming infant. Two things occurred that were very interesting. First, when they played that screaming infant sound, only the mother of the particular infant looked towards the speaker. <laughs> Second, the other mothers looked at the specific mother <laughs> of the screaming infant, not towards the direction of where the infant would have been screaming from. So think of yourself in a, in a grocery store, right? And all of a sudden you hear, Mom! I know that's not my kid, so I'm not going to be looking around for it, but I'm looking around for whose kid is that, right? So it's the same situation. So uh, they're used to confirm group members and territory, used to strengthen pair bonds, and that's that playback experiment, right, where they'll do it for many instances where they'll play an infant or they will play a uh, call of a predator and see what the reaction is of the group. And so there's many different experiments. This uh, experiment supports the hypothesis that primates, they do know each other. And their distinct vocalizations, they know who is related to whom in the group. What kinds of primates communication did you see in the video last week? Did you see those howler monkeys with those huge glottal like, ooh, ooh, ooh. I can't do it because I don't have that structure in my glottal throat area, but they were using that to affirm territory, right? This is my territory. That gentleman who was the host of the show was encroaching on their territory and they went into action right away. Not only the alpha started, but all of his underlings started to howl as well, right? So that's, yes, going to confirm their territory as theirs. At the end of this chapter, I'd like for you to kind of start thinking about this short answer question for the exam. Describe the difference between male and female reproductive strategies. Why are their strategies different? And we went over this a few times. So when we go home uh, over spring break, I will post this to Canvas so that you guys have access to the PowerPoint and you'll have access to the short answer question and you can start thinking about this and formulating your answer to that on your note page. So that is the end of chapter seven. going to get into chapter 8, which is a little bit more in depth, and we start to switch gears. <clears throat> okay. All right. So like I said, I will put that on Canvas for you so that you can review it at your leisure. All right. Now, question. Would you guys like to take a little break before we get into chapter eight, or you want to just drive right on through? I get a, I get a right on through to the other side. Anybody disagree? Go on through. All right, I'm getting the go on through. All right. So let's carry on. Now, how I would like to do this in the future is actually do chapters eight and nine first, and then talk about primates in six and seven. I think it's. It's more functional to talk about that evolutionary timeline leading up to where we are today versus talking about the wide array of adaptive radiation of primates and then going back in time. So chapter eight, we're gonna be discussing the concept of those evolutionary theorists again, right? But specifically talking about fossils and their place in time and nature. So in this chapter, we will explore how fossils are formed how scientists determine how old they are, 
and how fossils are used to reconstruct ancient anatomies, behaviors, and environments. So we are going to be discussing fossils. This is a, a really close to my heart chapter because I really enjoy fossils. Um, I thought I was gonna become a paleoanthropologist or a paleontologist when I was younger and even up until I went to grad school, but it's such a pigeonholed field that you really become um, a, a victim of your own education. So jobs are really difficult to find. You end up being pigeonholed into one sort of section of work. Uh, the individuals you network with are very small. Uh, so I decided to go a, a little bit of a larger route and go to anthropology. And paleoanthropology is really exciting. And that's when we start to learn about our lineage, our human ancestors leading up to Homo. So this is a typical picture of an excavation in the field. This is actually in uh, Old Divide Gorge. And what they're doing, see he's, they're all wearing knee pads. They've got long shirts on, they're wearing hats. Like I said, typically the excavation period will be in the dead of summer, which is like the least opportune time to be digging in the middle of a desert. But that's when we have our sabbaticals. That's when we have our chance to get out into the field is during the summer. So that's when we conduct our research. So these are most likely uh, researcher aides who are helping the researcher himself. And this is a prospecting and survey excavation. I don't see a lot of gridding like we saw in the archeological slide where we actually grid the territory up and down so we can make a full map of what's in that area. Uh, when you're doing a paleontology or paleoanthropology tour, you're going to be looking on the surface. And so when I went to, um, I went to El Golfo, Mexico to go on an excavation tour myself, and it was just prospecting, prospecting and surveying. So I had my brushes, I had like this really cool belt that held my brush and my pick, and uh, I had a camera, and I had the, like a, a goggle, and sometimes if it gets really windy, you want to wear a mask so you're not breathing in that dust. And I had my knee pads on, and you wear a hat because it's so freaking hot, and you just kind of are very slowly, methodically, kind of searching the ground for any fossil material. And that's because when you're in these areas, the erosion of the landscape is happening naturally, and it's eroding from the side. So anything that may have been nicely stacked in the strata are now kind of eroding to the sides and can be kind of along a hillside. So even just a visual scan can bring up some really great fossil material. Uh, one of my cohorts in, on that trip, we were standing next to each other, and he goes, what's, what's that? And I go, I don't know, it kind of looks like a patella, which is your kneecap. It turned out to be a fully articulated, once we brushed everything away, a fully articulated Pleistocene camel. Wow. <laughs> he found it, I was standing next to it. I, uh, anyway, whatever. It was very exciting regardless. <laughs> so, fossils, they are definitely the evidence for the past. Fossils are physical evidence for life forms that no longer exist. This is why it's called physical anthropology. It started as physical evidence of our human lineage. Fossils provide strong evidence for evolution. We know that living organisms today must have had ancestors. We're not just placed here right now at this point in time. There are ancestors that have led up to us. And fossils give us an actual concrete evidence that these an ancestors existed, right? So fossils allow us direct observation about how anatomy has changed. 
a course over time and how to unfold that pattern by which adaptations have evolved. This is the most important note to note. Keep in mind that these creatures that are now extinct that we will be learning about does not mean that they were evolutionary failures. All of those individuals in the cabinets up there, although no longer on this earth, they were not evolutionary failures. Some of them may have gone to an evolutionary dead end. However, it was them that was paramount in leading to us, right? So they were well adapted for their particular environment at that particular time. However, environments change, right? And these primates may not have been adapted for that changing world and eventually became extinct. If you don't move to an environment that is better suited for you, or you stay and you perish in that environment, things change and you may not be best suited for that location. So here's a variety of fossil forms. If you're aware of some of these, great. If not, let me explain them to you. So these are actually fossil bacteria. You can't see really well here, but this is a really great fossil bacteria. Single cell organism right there, right in the middle. Uh, even some of, some of these are single cell organisms as well. Uh, probably found in a stacked strata from a bottom of some sort of water area. That's where typically life formed is in some sort of water area. This one, third over right there, is a marine creature called an ammonite. Am this one is a trilobite. Many of you are very familiar with a trilobite, some of the very first crustaceans on Earth. Uh, let's see, the fourth one, this is a fossilized fern, meaning it fell onto the ground, uh, it was covered over, and now we have fossil evidence over time after removing the layers, that's a fossil fern. This is a fossil crab, fossil turtle. This one is a fish, of course, Tyrannosaurus rex. What do you think this one is? What was that? Primate. It's a very, very ancient, million years old primate. To be exact, it's a fossil primate called Darwinius. And it, uh, recently recovered from 47 million year old swamp deposits in Germany. And this is actually a really cool one because if you notice, and you can look in your book at a more clear picture on page 236, but what you see is not only the skeletal feature, but this kind of edging out from the skeleton, which is its, its flesh and its skin that is still retained in this section of, of strata. Incredible, incredible. I was just watching a documentary with uh, David Attenborough about Ichthyosaurus. Ichthyosaurus is one of the uh, prehistoric marine reptiles, but it gave birth to live young. It was a really interesting uh, species. But again, happened to die, go down to the bottom, get covered over, covered over, covered over, and so much so that it was able to preserve the skin attached to the bone material, and they were able to run um, microscopic and molecular analysis on that skin to reveal kind of coloration. 
uh, how dense the, th the, skin, the thickness of the skin may have been, what maybe was on the outside of that skin, if it was covered in scales and or if it was smooth. Very interesting, very, very interesting. So this was a really cool find. So let's get into how fossils are made. I know I was just touching on it briefly, but this is a typical reconstruction of how fossils are made. So uh, reference page 238. So this is going to be a reconstruction of how a hominin or a human fossil has become apparent to us. So we'll start up here and we'll work our way towards the bottom. So essentially a hominin, like a human, can die and collapse and it falls onto the ground, right? So over time, the fleshy parts of the body start to decay and deteriorate off the bone and the bone is left there. Now, that bone material is not articulated anymore. So burial of all the bones may not be so apparent, though often the bones are moved around by water or parts of the skeleton are dragged away by scavengers. Whatever bones are left may become buried. So the sediments uh, start to kind of <coughs> layer on top over time, just like when you're going around with a dusting brush in your house, you see all that layer of dust. Well, think hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of layers of dust, right? The sediments at the bottom of the lake replace the, uh, so this is now, we're in here, many, many layers over of sediment, dirt, mud, maybe volcanic ash, layer over the dead hominin becomes so layered that now it's not available for oxygen and oxidiza oxid oxidization of the material. The sediments at the bottom of the lake replace the minerals in the bones and teeth, slowly turning the bones to stone. As more and more sediment is deposited over time, creating layers or strata, the sediment can be problematic and the pressure accumulated on that sediment can crush bones. This is also known as taphonomy. I volunteered at the La Brea Tar Pits for many years and we would excavate many different types of bones all on top of each other and we would see bone wear, bone on bone wear. And so that would be called taphonomy where you end up getting a lot of, uh, we call pit wear, where it's a lot of sediment on top of each other and then the bones start to kind of decay and then collapse onto <coughs> each other. So it's not gonna keep a great fossil record, it might have some distortion in that fossil. But what's most important to remember is that fossil material does no longer have organic material. That's why we can't pull DNA from fossil material because it is now inorganic stone material that has replaced the organic material. That's why it's fossilized. That's why it becomes so hard is because it now has stone material instead of organic material. So a change in the environment or geological activity uh, can cause these ancient lake beds to elevate and erode and eventually expose these layers of rocks and bring the bones back to the surface. And so this is what ends up happening, say, when there's a climate change. We went through a great ice age. A lot of that water was locked up at the poles, reducing the sea levels and exposing some areas that had not been exposed for many, many years. And when the exposure of those new levels under the sea were apparent, we were able to see things or maybe pull things from those strata that were not apparent when the sea levels were higher and the poles did not have ice caps. This is a 
artist's rendition of how some of these hominins or human fossil remains can end up in a cave. So what ends up happening is large cats like to prey on their prey in a tree. It reduces the amount of competition for that prey on the ground. So they take, up, take it up into a tree. What ends up happening is much like the, uh, the possum skull that I found in the rafters of my, of my garage, the head falls off of the carcass and it ends up maybe dropping into some sort of hole that was in the ground that leads to a larger cavernous hole underneath. Over time, that hole fills up with layers and layers of sediment and may and it can be exposed if this hillside starts to erode and starts to show the fragmentation of that sediment layer over time. And so therefore, this is what a typical excavation, this is what a very extensive excavation can look like. You have the gritting poles going horizontally and then vertically down. And every morsel of matrix is recorded. And so that's what they're showing you going down into the ditch of where those hominin bones were found. So, okay, let's see. Another type of fossil findings that was very paramount for anthropology is fossilized footprints. Maybe not something that you think of every day, but Laetoli footprints are some of the most foundational understandings of our human ancestry ever. Gave us unrefuted evidence that humans walked on two feet. So in Laetoli, which is around uh, the Gombe National Park area, it's in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, more on the east side. They, they were made by human ancestors 3.5 million years ago in Tanzania, Africa. And so what ends up happening is, uh, let's see, these prints were formed when hominins and other animals living on the landscape walked across a bed of wet volcanic ash that subsequently hardened like, hardened like cement under the equatorial African sun. That sun is so hot and it can dry out everything that is under the sun if it doesn't have shade. Over time, maybe more volcanic ash uh, falling from the sky buried these footprints. And later, over million millions of years, they were rediscovered by scientists. So this is just an artist rendition of how those footprints may have occurred. We don't really know if the hominins were walking with some sort of staff or stick. Uh, we don't really know if she was carrying a infant. What we do know is that there are more than one hominin fossil footprints. It looks as though it is a male and a juvenile because what we have evidence of is the male footprints walking and then in the feet footprints of the male, you see little tiny juvenile footprints, kind of like following dad's feet on the sand, if you were to do that, say at the beach or something. So that was really, see how you have a little tiny footprint? Back here, you end up seeing the actual little footprints in the larger footprint, which was really, really exciting to see. And that was, again, uh, the best direct evidence that we have to show that our, our ancestors walked on two feet. And they leave little doubt that these creatures moved on two, not four. And that is direct evidence of our bipedal past. 
However, there is limitations of the fossil record, right? So fossils in general are just rare. They don't come along very often. So paleontologists have searched for fossils only in some places, and so uh, not have discovered all fossil areas. Fossils are well preserved in some areas and not in others. If you have a very dry climate, the oxidation level is very, very low, fossilization is probably going to take place more so than in very moist, hot climates where you don't have that chance to dry out. And so rock sequences are not always complete when they are discovered either. So you might get a hillside that's kind of uh, eroding away, but you can't just take that whole section of strata out. You're going to have to figure out where in that section of strata it came from and if you can remove the rest of it to get that information from there. It's not always possible. So when I was watching that Ichthyosaurus documentary, he was on the northernmost coast of it would be like the Scotland area, the northernmost coast, and it was a sleet rock bed that he happened to know that there would be a fossilized section of ichthyosaurs. He got one whole section of it, but it was only the front half of the ichthyosaur. So his goal was to find the second half of it, but he had to go back to that rock bed and see if he could identify where that second half was. So again, rock sequences are not always complete when they are discovered. So this is a great time to give you the second most important document or, or chart in this unit. The first one was the primate taxonomy on page 184 and 185. For this unit, this is one of the best guides for you. The second one is this geological time scale, and that's on page 246. It's important to understand the geological time scale so you can understand how far back and in what epic and era these fossils are coming out of. So the earth is extremely old. It's 4.6 billion years old. So we have to know that the order of existence of these extinct creatures to reconstruct the pattern of these changes over time, uh, we typically understand that older generations are way lower of the bottom of the strata in the earth and newer generations are gonna be more towards the top. Earth's history is broken down into eons, eras, periods, and epochs. Let me show you how to read this chart because I think it's a little confusing if you've never seen it before. So this is the age, the whole age of the Earth right here. And then they break it out for you. So right here in this blue, it has two little dotted lines. And it's labeled blue here for the Paleocene. This is the Paleocene right here. And it's denoted by these two little dotted lines. The Cenozoic era is indicated by this kind of light yellow, and the Mesozoic by this kind of bright yellow right in the middle. And then they break it out again. For the Cenozoic, this is that whole tertiary Cenozoic period. And then for that really, really top part of the Cenozoic, the Holocene and the uh, Pleistocene, right here. So it kind of breaks it down for you. This is the larger whole section, then it breaks down each of these three sections, then this top section is broken down again, and that top section is broken down again into detail. So the first primate, uh, the first primate fossils are found in the Paleocene. So I can't read it very well up there, but the Paleocene is 
right here, let me see. The Paleocene is right here and it starts about 66 million years ago. That's the bottommost line. And the first primates are found in that era. Then we have anthropoid fossils are found in the Oligocene. Here's the Paleocene and here's the Oligocene, right? And ape fossils are found in the Miocene. Hmm, this is very interesting. And some of the very first hominins are found in the Pliocene. That gives you a nice chronological order from oldest to current day. If we look back, uh, today we are in the new epoch, only about 10,000 years, called the Holocene. And that's this tiny little section right there. So this is the, the geological time scale, and it's just pretty much dividing Earth's geological time into sections to digest it easier. So the majority of history of Earth during the Hadean, the Archean, and the Proterozoic eons, those are very, very ancient, was dominated by relatively simple single-celled organisms. There was not a lot of change happening because it took a lot of time to even get to those single-cell organisms. The next three eras, approximately 545 million year span, which are the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic, this is where diversification became more and more complex. So 65 million years is a major event in the history of primate evolution. Again, the fossils found in the Paleocene and the Eocene are some of the very first primates. That's dating back to where primates and mammals start to branch off. The anthropoids, which are old world monkeys, new world monkeys, apes, and humans, we start to see the very ancient lineage of that group in the Oligocene. And then the apes start to come in in the Miocene. And we'll do a whole chapter on chapter nine on apes in the Miocene. So most of the primate evolution unfolds about 65 million years ago. By studying these geological formations and by measuring the rates at which continents drift across the Earth, we can determine the age of Earth and the fossils within its crust. So this is what is so important is to understand that the plate tectonics of our Earth has everything to do with climate and environment change, as well as an adaptation of species to a specific environment. So if you go back, how many of you learned this in, in high school, plate tectonics, or even grammar school, that you understood that the Earth's crust is ever-changing and it's not static, right? So that there are large crusts that make up the entire world and they are kind of moving all at once because within the Earth is kind of a magma, you know, it's liquid, it's not, it's not solid, so it's ever-changing those plates around the world. 350 million years ago, we had a kind of collision of all those plates and it formed a supercontinent called Pangaea 350 million years ago. The climate was much different. It was dry. It created um, uh, jet, jet, what are those called? Jet streams that uh, were different from today. They carried different uh, seasons with them. They carried different tides with them. They, they, it was a different world then because of the way that the plate tectonics were situated. They created a supercontinent. At about 150 million years ago, we start to see, and this is a segregation of 200 million years, you, you start to see the supercontinent breaking up into some of the larger uh, subcontinents that we have today. 
South America and Africa, if you notice, they fit really snugly into each other because they were together at one point in time. North America, the North American plate starts to drift off into the northwestern area. The Asian continental plate starts to drift off into the eastern, northeastern area. The Indian plate starts to move north. It was very, very far south, more towards the South Pole area where the Antarctic plate is. This India plate, ends up moving all the way north and colliding into Asia, creating the Himalayas, some of the highest points of mountains in the world. Because that Indian plate is colliding into that Asian plate, it's creating what we call uplift. And those plates coming together move and create mountains, literally moves mountains. And so those are some of the tallest peaks in the world because those plates are slowly colliding together. In another million years or so, and the India plate will be altogether missing and under the Asia plate. So that's what's, in the, that's what's happening right now. We're watching that happen very slowly. It's kind of like grass growing. About 70 million years ago, we start to see pretty much the formation of where we are now. And then again, this is where this current position is, where that India plate, look at how much it moved in just a short amount of time. So it's sitting around on the southern hemisphere, kind of hanging out, hanging out, moving a little bit. But within 70 million years, that Indian plate moves right into Asia, and that Australian plate moves way, way over on the east side, and that Antarctic plate stays there on the southernmost tip. So it's important to realize that uh, these continents are moving because of the underlying plate tectonics, and that's what's really creating a shift in climate and a shift in environment. So, when we talk about fossils, there's a couple ways to date fossils. Not going on a date, but how to analyze <laughs> like how old they are, right? So, everything after this slide is a relative dating technique, meaning you're going to get a kind of ballpark figure of how old they are. You're not going to get an exact number, but you're going to get a, a ballpark figure. So, let's start with the relative dating techniques. Steno's law of superposition. So this is Mr. Steno, dating all the way back to the 1600s. So Mr. Steno spent a lot of time kind of thinking about the layers of the earth. He was a Danish scholar, uh, and Steno studied geological formations around Italy and collected the fossils contained in these stratigraphic layers. He deduced that the higher rocks, this is the guy that deduced the higher rocks are closer to the surface, were geologically younger than the lower or deeper rocks. He called this relative dating, in which one event can be determined to be younger or older than the other based on its relative position in the stratigraphic layering. And so we also get with this strat stratigraphic correlation, excuse me, stratigraphic correlations. I cannot talk tonight. Um, it's really the chemical compositions of the sediments in that, uh, in that layer or that strata can be compared across large areas. And these strata must have been deposited at the same time back when these regions were physically closer together. So you start to see that South American uh, plate and that African plate, when they were very close together and connected, after they drifted apart, you start to see some of those fossil features in strata that are very equal to the same fossil features in the same strata in the African continent as well. And so that gives us indication that 
those were actually uh, the same or connected at one time. Another type of relative dating is called chemical dating. Chemical dating is uh, the relative age of fossil bones, uh, fossil bones determined by the amount of fluorine they contain. So bones are buried and they absorb elements in the surrounding soil. Bones that have been buried for a long time observe, absorb more fluorine than bones that are recently buried. Therefore, older bones contain a higher concentration of fluorine. There's many different types of chemicals, but fluorine is one of the larger ones and it's most abundantly found in the environment. So that's one of the ways that we can identify uh, how old something is by how much fluorine it has absorbed over a period of time. So this, for instance, fossils have been in soil longer, will have absorbed greater uh, quantities of fluorine. And so this, this crab or whatever, I think it may be even a cage, might be older because it, it, it contains more fluorine than something that is higher up in the strata. Again, this is a relative dating technique, giving you a relative ballpark. So uh, let's see. Okay, another relative dating technique is called biostratigraphic dating or faunal dating. And essentially what this is saying is that uh, it's a relative dating technique that uses associations of fossils in strata to determine each layer's approximate age. So using the law of superposition, uh, the index fossils could be used to access the relative age of particular strata. For example, and we're going to be talking about those guys right there. For example, th this is an image of an extinct deer called an Irish elk. Researchers know that Irish elk became extinct in Northern Europe about 10,000 years ago. <coughs> Excuse me. If you find a fossil of an Irish elk in a particular strata, it must be older if it's lower or younger if it's higher above that. So what it's saying is that you can, uh, the youngest molars are the, are the tallest in the back. I don't know why they're doing this. And the molars increase in height. Okay, ignore this. It, what it's saying is that when you find a certain fossil that we know went extinct at a certain period of time and there are other individuals that are around it, you can relatively date those other fossil types to that one that you know, to that index fossil that you know the age of. Other, other fossil findings around it will be relatively dated towards that index fossil as relatively close in time. If it's lower in the strata, it will be older. If it's higher up in the strata, it will be younger. We do this also with cultural dating. So humans have been making and building things throughout our entire lineage, especially tools. Tools are culture. Um, that is a huge identifying factor for when those tools were made and how old those tools are. As we get further into our human uh, cognitive abilities like homo lineage, we start to get very uh, distinct cultural attaches, cultural uh, things. So you can start to date things according to specific cultural items. So vases from Olympia in, you know, in Greece and in Athens and Rome will have a specific dating period to it than newer items coming from North and South America, right? And so once you start kind of 
figuring out the layers of that strata, you can start to compare those kinds of cultural items to each other to get a relative date of when they occurred. I think this has a relative age of certain wars. So you go back to, uh, this is called the Boer War, starting about the early 1900s. And then you go all the way up to World War One and World War Two, and there are certain elements to those types of situations that are reminiscent of a certain period of time. And so you can date it relative to those periods of time. Okay, so we talked about the relative dating techniques. Now what follows are absolute dating techniques. Ways that we can date items to an absolute or exact number, the closest we can get, right? The first one being dendrochronology. Dendrochronology talks about tree rings. So this is a cross section of a tree, and notice all the different rings in it. So if you were to count each ring, you can pretty much count how old the tree is and then date it according to that. So a chronometric, meaning exact date, uh, dating method that uses tree ring counting to determine the age of that uh, specimen. And you can also, with tree ring dating, it's really indicative of the seasonality of that environment as well. When you get a very extended ring, where it's a nice robust ring all the way around, it may have been a very robust rainy season or have a lot of rain in that environment. If you get rings that are very, very close together, it may have not been such a robust rainy season. You may have had a drier climate, therefore it's um, going to retain its energy by not expanding as much that year. How trees grow is from the inside out, and so that's how those rings are forming, right? <clears throat> so, this is a distinct pattern of tree rings in a cross section of a fallen tree. Another type of chronometric or absolute dating is called radiocarbon dating. And radiocarbon dating is analyzing and measuring the half-life of carbon. So here's how radiocarbon dating works. Every single living thing on Earth uses carbon. Carbon-14 is a radioactive element and it decays to nitrogen-14. <coughs> the decay of nitrogen-14 happens at a constant and predictable rate, so we can calculate this. Half of the radioactive carbon in a substance will decay into nitrogen in 5,730 years. This is called the half-life. Remember this from high school? This is your half-life of a carbon, uh, of radiocarbon. So, the half-life if an organism dies and the radio, the carbon-14 begins to decay into nitrogen-14, at the half of that, the longer it has been dead, the less carbon it will contain. If the bone contains carbon-14, half of carbon-14 and half of nitrogen, then it is directly one half-life. It is 5,000, 5, I'm so sorry, I'm not getting any of this right. 5,730 years old, that's the half-life. So, Take it down into another half-life. If it only contains 25% of the carbon, then it has two half-lives, and you add them together, coming out to 11,460 years old. It won't take very long for all of that carbon to run out. So what do you do if anything is older than what a radiocarbon date can date? You have to have another way. 
We have other radiometric uh, dating techniques that use other elements. Potassium argon is one of the major ones. Uh, it goes all the way back to 1.3 billion years. You can radiocarbon date that back to, like I said, a, million, a billion years. And so uh, those half-lives are much longer, they're much older, and they take a lot longer to decay. <clears throat> so um, one of the other chronologic or absolute dating techniques is the molecular clock. And this talks about that genetics aspect that we studied so hard in chapter three. So the molecular clock, DNA is a mo molecule and it is chemically the same in all organisms. Remember that most organisms on earth, if they are organic, are going to have in their DNA the A, the T, the C, and the G. The rate of mutation can determine species divergence and create a time scale. That's what the molecular clock is and so that's what this is showing, right? Amazing similarity in DNA uh, sequences between humans and chimpanzees show 98% of our DNA is essentially the same. So a reasonable question to ask is how long would it take for that 2% difference to accumulate? So the chart shows divergent rates of catarines. That is old world monkeys and apes. Old world monkeys and apes diver diverged 25 million years ago. Here are the old world monkeys, and here are all of the apes. Lesser apes, apes, humans, okay? Gibbons branched from the hominoid lineage about 18 million years ago. So you have another branch right here. About 18 million years ago, the gibbons branch off. Now you're left with all of the other apes. The great apes split into the Asian and African apes only about 14 million years ago. So you have another branch. Then you get the branching off of gorillas about 12 million years ago. And then between chimpanzees and hominins, nine is a very uh, conservative number. We can branch it back. Some genetic information in research has shown us it can go all the way back to 12 million years ago. So this can be anywhere from nine to about 12 million years ago. You start to see the branch off of chimpanzees and hominins. And then you start to see that branching off of hominins on their own. So uh, this is what we call a phylogenetic chart in way of analyzing time and the branching of certain species denoted by their genetics. So here it is again. The DNA molecule is uh, essentially the same. We're all composed of the same underlying nucleotides, the A's, the C's, the G's, and the T's. Phylogenetic chart on the previous slide shows the divergent dates of old world monkeys and apes according to genetic data. Old world monkeys and apes diverged 25 million years ago. That's going to be a key component with understanding the evolution of apes in the Miocene. The Miocene is a huge time span where apes start to evolve very uh, rapidly in the Miocene. Gibbons, one of the lesser apes, branched from the hominoid lineage about 18 million years ago, so they branched off of the great ape line about 18 million years ago. And again, uh, the Asian and African apes 14 million years ago, where we see the divergence of humans and other apes about 9 to 12 million years ago. So if you look in your book on 
one of the last pages here. So yeah, 263, because it's not real clear if you can't see it in the back. 263 gives you a nice breakdown of the relative dating techniques, getting a ballpark figure of when those events happened, and the numerical age, or the chronometric, or the absolute dating techniques. And just keep in mind that scientists are not using just one dating technique. They're using multiple dating techniques to get a good indication of when that fossil um, occurred or when extinct. Because you can't just go off of one dating technique, obviously. If it's relative dating technique, you're gonna get a ballpark figure. If it's an absolute dating technique, you're gonna get a number associated with it. But if you're getting a relative dating technique and an absolute dating technique converging and confirming a certain period of time, that is your most substantial research and data to go off of. And so we use multiple aspects, uh, multiple ways to get a dating number for a specific fossil finding. So that, uh, please review that page, because that'll give you some information on the different types of dating. The last slide for today, and oh my gosh, we're good, we're early. Okay, global temperature and climate changes. So if you can't see this real well in the back, I believe this is on page 266. Times of increased warmth, like the Eocene and the Miocene, we start to see a large increase of temperature during these times, correspond to the evolution of true primates and apes. When we get into chapter nine, we're gonna talk about true primates. What defines a primate from this large array of mammals that is occurring already in the environment at 65 million years ago? So these true primates, they're called euprimates, are what we evolved from. The cooling and the drying of the planet during the end of the Miocene corresponds to the expansion of grasslands in Africa and the evolution of bipedal locomotion. So. Let's break this graph down for you. The top one is talking about temperature of the earth. This bottom portion is talking about sea levels associated with the temperature of the earth. Remember, if it's hotter, sea levels will rise. If it's cooler, sea levels will drop, right? So it's saying during the Eocene, and if you need to refer back to your geological time scale when the Eocene is, go back and look at what time it is. Temperature increased. The change might have led to a growth of tropical forests. This Eocene is from about mm, maybe 55 to 35 million years ago, which were ideal habitats for tree-dwelling ancestors of modern primates. Remember that we came out of a very tropical uh, climate, and so that was very favorable for us in way of accessing resources, right? So you start to see an increase in temperature right in the middle of the Eocene. And that also, this is the uh, sea level, starts to kind of <laughs> indicate this really nice increase of sea level. Again, if you have a hot climate, you're not gonna have much ice at the poles. Now, when you start to get out of the Eocene and you start to get into the Oligocene, you start to see a drop in climate, a really significant drop in climate. The temperatures plunge as Earth's entering a cooling period. In uh, formerly tropical environments, forested areas would have been replaced by open grasslands. So you start to see this change. Primate ancestors would have had to adapt to the grasslands or move to other tropical environments. And if those other tropical environments were so out of the area that you could not get to it safely and or successfully, you may perish. And so it's either, it's either figure out a way to survive or move, right? And so we start to see a drop in the climate. And again, 
you start to see a drop in the sea levels as well. You're starting to get some of that ice formation at the poles. At the end of the Miocene, this is now about 11, 10, 10 million years ago, Earth entered another cooling period. Dramatic changes in habitat and climate occurred. And the reduced forests and the increase of the grassland might have accounted in part for the evolution of bipedal locomotion. And so there was a selective favor for walking on two feet during a much drier or less humid climate. And some research is showing that it wasn't necessarily an open grassland that we think of today where there's very few trees, tall grasses, uh, kind of a brown landscape with a savanna-like environment. We're actually, um, with the addition of fossil findings like Artipithecus, which we will go over, we see that around eight million years ago, anywhere from six to eight million years ago, our ancestors still had a divergent big toe. And so that would not be favorable in a grassland environment being bipedal at the same time. So indications from the data, from the fossil findings, indicate that if, he, if Artipithecus had a divergent big toe, that they were still living a life primarily in trees and coming down to the ground to forage and or find other sources of, of, of food. That indicates to us that maybe new research is showing that grasslands weren't primarily the environment in which humans have evolved, that there could still be some sort of forest-like environment that we were very <coughs> accustomed to. More to come on chapter nine. Gosh, we went through that very quickly, excellent.